Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's Wednesday, December the 26th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It's not actually Wednesday, December the 26th. To be honest, I'm not actually in the Irish Times on St. Stephen's Day. The podcast you are about to hear was recorded just before we all broke for Christmas. I was joined by Pat Leahy, Harry McGee, Jennifer Bray and Fia Kelly, a full house of our political staff, to take questions from you, which you submitted to us over the week before Christmas. Our first question was from Ushin. Uh, he asked the following question. During your careers as journalists, what was the most exciting or memorable moment that you had while working on a political story? And the first person to answer was Fiuk. Um I think probably the period around the bailout and the collapse of the Fianna Fáil Green Party government because it was so dramatic and what we were seeing was unprecedented and every day brought some fresh new horror. Um, one moment that sticks particularly in the mind is... Um, the day, the morning, Brian Cowan tried to reshuffle his cabinet. People refused to take positions, and we were all sat on the press gallery watching this unfold. And you know, this half, is what December twenty ten. December twenty ten. The reshuffle was January twenty eleven. January twenty eleven. Yeah. Sorry, that's when he brought. He was. He had already committed to an election, but the the shambles of the reshuffle made him bring forward the election from March to February. I think memory serves me correctly but we had this spectacle of a half full cabinet walking in ministers with two or three portfolios Eamon Gilmore at the time was very powerful I remember that morning standing up and saying who is in charge of the guards who is in charge of the army who is in charge of the health service and then we on the press gallery kind of left the gallery but there's quite a narrow corridor in Leinster where we funnel out and join the main building and that happens at the point where TDs leave the chamber and there's a big kind of ceremonial staircase, if you will. But at the top of the staircase was a large portion of the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party openly rowing um, amongst themselves in full view of the press with Brian Lenehan, uh, the Minister of Finance, in the middle of it all. And they're, they're shouting at each other about how this is a shambles. And I remember one of them going, I'm just going back to my constituency. And like that period, I don't remember if it was that period or the period after, like you you couldn't walk around the co- a corner of the building without a cabinet minister going, have you been briefed about the collapse of the government? And I remember one cabinet minister being on one side of a, of a wall saying very openly derogatory things about another cabinet minister who then came around the other side of the wall and clearly heard what was happening and had to pretend like it wasn't. It was just an unbelievable time and right. I don't think it, it, I'll ever it see it a, again. It was a full-scale political collapse and we were watching it in mm. slow motion. I remember it vividly at the time. And at that time of the reshuffle, we were, uh, you know, kind of, we were one catastrophe away from an insoluble constitutional crisis because the, the cabinet was, I think, at one stage down to That's its minimum constitutional limit. Constitution 
constitutional uh, number, which is seven. seven I think, I think, I think the you know, this absurdity seven. with single individuals holding four, three or four different portfolios. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and and to be honest, you know, to uh, uh, not to not not to digress entirely, but there are times when you look at Westminster now and you see parallels to that sort of collapse of central political authority of the government in Parliament. And I suspect when Westminster resumes after uh, after Christmas, we will see more of that, I think. It's kind of like you know, those old movies where you see some kid in 1950s America with his homemade cart going down the hill and the wheels start coming off, but the thing is still going. Like, it's kind Anybody of- got another event? My one is exactly the same. I just want to feel saying it there, I was saying... <coughs> That's exactly how I remember it, and it's it's it was so compelling, and so unusual, and so dramatic, and to see once you see politicians in kind of that kind of cluster outside the parliament and debating and kind of saying where are we going, to, what are we doing here, what are we doing next, not knowing you know you know the extent of the crisis. And the stakes felt very high, didn't they? It was a well, bit like huge, the Brexit. They were huge uh, parallel huge with at the time because yeah. people were were afraid that the country was on the verge of collapse and, 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 and economic collapse. And, 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 in a way, enough, it was. Mm. Yeah, and then, funny enough, I remember when. The election was finally confirmed, so it was brought forward because of this crisis. And there was almost this sense of release and catharsis in the chamber when Brian Cowan was on his feet. I think he was cutting raftery and filler about now is the springtime. And there was just this sense of, of release in the whole place and everybody flooded out. I distinctly remember... You know, leaving Leinster House and you just had this real kind of buzz in the air that you know the crisis had probably reached its highest point There was the nation was going to the side I remember Rory Quinn I think was director of elections for the Labour Party hopping on a bike outside Leinster House and speeding down towards their headquarters in Golden Lane it was just a really dramatic time I don't think I'll ever forget it Jennifer were you on the beat at that point? Um, I wasn't in politics uh, I think I was either health or general news there was a bit of showbiz in there somewhere so possibly a bit distracted by other matters at the time um, but I totally agree with, with with all, what all the lads are saying was incredibly dramatic time. The thing that I was going to pick was because it's Christmas. I said I keep it a little bit lighter, um, and the, in terms of the question about being in a story that's kind of exciting. And I know this is a bit nerdy, but it, uh, I was thinking about uh, the St. Patrick's Day trip. So when we got into the Oval Office, you know, and you're standing there in front of Donald Trump and Leo Varadkar, and he's even more orange than you could possibly have imagined. Um, and you're, it's kind of surreal when you're standing there. You're like, I'm in the Oval Office. Donald Trump is, you know, three feet away. There's Leo Varadkar looking very scared. Um, you know, and there's little things that, like, you never get to write about and you, you would sound like a nerd. Well, I'm just going to say it anyway. But they bring you around in the motorcade. And that's exciting. You're going through Washington. All the streets are all uh, closed off. Um, so, yeah, and, and obviously Varadkar, you know, it was a big trip for him. It was probably one of his biggest meetings of the year. And he had that, you know, horrible line about the planning thing with, uh, with uh, Donald Trump. Oh, remind remind our listeners that he had basically that he had intervened um, in a planning application uh, for in Trump's hotel in in Doombeg on his behalf and, and, you know, got this issue to go away. I remember we were all standing in the room and I just, I put my head in my hands. I was like, this can't be real. I was like, he's not actually saying this, is he? And he was and he did. And it kind of overshadowed his whole trip. But it was exciting being there. And I shouted a question at Donald Trump. I said, will you come to the border? And he said, I would go to the border. And I kind of thought, well, that's a great answer. You didn't answer at all, which is very Donald Trump-esque. But yeah, I thought that was kind of exciting. Really. <laughs> OK, another question. This one I've got to put to you, Harry. It kind of touches on a subject which we, uh, which we uh, discussed recently on the podcast. Vinny asks, why is Alan Kelly so disliked in Labour? Uh, I do not like the Dr. Fell. The reason why, I cannot tell. But this I know and know full well. I do not like you, Alan Kelly. Um, 
I think it's just his manner. He's very abrasive. He's combative. He uh, isn't subtle. Um, he probably rubs people up the wrong way. Uh, he probably um, attacks each uh, delicate piece of china with a sledgehammer. And that has um, a, a, a slightly uh, collateral effect on, on his, his uh, colleagues. He's very ambitious as well. And um, somebody said to me recently that the definition of a politician is somebody who has a huge ego, but it successfully hides that ego really well. And Alan Kelly doesn't hide it. You know, he, he is that a fatal flaw? I don't know if it's a flaw, but it makes him, it sets, it makes him unusual in the context of, of many Irish politicians. And, um, you know, uh, that, that might, maybe has his ambition is overweening and that people think that perhaps his, his ambition is not matched by ability. And Alan Kelly has limits and has limitations. Uh, I was making the point that he, he has been very impactful. Um, I think he, um, he, he, he has chosen his, his causes very well. And then once he's chosen them, he's, he's committed himself. He's, as they say in poker, he's all in. And once he's all in, he can make him an impact. Sometimes they kind of rebound on him. Fiuk was reminding us at the podcast during the week of... of Keith Harrison was one that's very Ke- Keith Harrison, where he said, this is a national scandal and an outrage. And he, he shouts and he roars and he jumps up and down. And then there's a bit of kind of the boy crying wolf about it. Tribune a couple of weeks later... destroyed he, Keith Harrison and yeah. Alan Kelly was nowhere to be found. Yeah, so he, he keep, qui- he keep qui- quiet about it. I mean, there are questions about his wherewithal, Willie. You know, it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what makes a a good leader. At the same time, though, Harry, I, I wonder if you asked our listeners, you know, who, which Labour politician this year did they notice? Mm. I think most of them would say Alan Kelly. He certainly hasn't got anything right, uh, got everything right, but he made noise for the party. He scored hits on the government mm. on things like the cervical uh, cervical check scandal. And, you know, Labour, Labour, I think, you know, is in danger of being completely marginalised in politics. I think this is what they didn't realise when they stayed out of government on this this occasion in 2016. They didn't realise that opposition in in, in the current doll would be an awful lot different to opposition, uh, Labour's experience of opposition in the past when it had, you know, time, media time and parliamentary time it's and a clear voice that stands out us, on the benches. Exactly. Yeah. Now it's one of a cacophony of, uh, of opposition voices. It has difficulty being heard. If it has difficulty being heard by us mm. in Leinster House, then I suspect people outside Leinster House don't hear it at all. But they do hear Alan Kelly. Yeah, yeah I'd, I mean... The, 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 the debate between you know whether Labour should stay in government and whether Labour should be in opposition, I'd be firmly of the view that Labour needs to stay in opposition, not only in this term, but also in the next term. And it is a debate that is rife uh, within the Labour Party. I would wonder that if a party like the Labour Party, which was very badly uh, damaged after the, the last election in terms of its numbers, I, I would worry about its long-term survivability if it had gone into government again. I really do. Some people would think that it would come out a little bit like the PD's back in uh, 2002 
uh, with with extra seats. But to me, that was an anomaly and that was uh, an outlier. And I just think that if Labour had gone back into government and do go back into the government the next time, that there will be question marks about the survival of the party in the long term. There are questions anyway. Questions anyway. Yeah, but I, I think, from my, from my point of view, I just think that they would probably be better off being in opposition over two terms to allow them to build up to some kind of momentum. Yeah, and he has done the, the party a service, to be fair, in terms of getting them some headlines during the year that they wouldn't have otherwise got. Um, and during the party's thinking, uh, when they were in the private meeting, if you're talking about why he's disliked by his colleagues, he did say, well, he attacked his own parliamentary colleagues and said they weren't doing a good enough job and they had to be out in the media more often. And he why had, aren't he you? Had a point. He did have a point, yeah. Kind of like, you know, you know. And it wasn't only him saying it, but I think Pat Rabbit said in a column he wrote the Business Post said you know where is the rest of the parliamentary party yeah. Alan Kelly's doing the heavy lifting himself Here's an interesting question from John Hi Hugh over the past year we've heard a lot of talk about a border poll and perhaps a united Ireland within the next decade my question is in terms of the makeup and support of political parties on both sides of the border who is set to win or lose if we were to see a united Ireland it seems like Sinn Féin would be set to benefit as they would consolidate their voting bases in the north and south but what effect would there be on the other major parties? Fiac. Clearly Sinn Féin, if there was a United Ireland, because they have a ready-made you know, constituency that is habitually conditioned to vote for it as its nationalist voice. No party has made any serious moves towards organising in Northern Ireland to prepare for that eventuality. Fianna Fáil are fl- flirting around the edges. With, you nearly said flirting around the edges. Uh, well, you know, like you could say both. Uh, with, uh, what they're going to do with, with, with the SDLP, but Sinn Féin have the organisation, they have the constituency ready to vote for them. So if there was a United Ireland, there But that's is. the, I mean, obviously in some ways, with all due respect, that's the obvious answer because yeah. they have substantial support in Northern Ireland and pretty substantial support in the Republic as well. So you just add them up and you've got that. But maybe the more well, maybe, interesting maybe, maybe. question, Jennifer, is, you know, how would a party like Fine Gael react if it was then, if it was operating in a 32 county, 32 county parliament? What, what, in what ways, if any, would the current unionist parties and the other parties in Northern Ireland transform or link up with parties across the board? Yeah, you'd have to imagine that it would almost be a case of the least worst option for, let's say, some people in the unionist community in, in terms of they might be, you know, float more towards Fine Gael just because of how much they dislike the other parties. It could end up being something like that. But I, I think, like, it's an interesting question, but it's also kind of a confusing one because mm. what exactly does a United Ireland even mean? Like, what does it look like? Are you going to have one parliament? Is it one parliament Dublin or is it just like yeah. we, we, flip, we flick it round? So Dublin yeah. is the parliament, but there's an assembly in Stormont, but it's just under But then under the United Good Friday Ireland Agreement, yeah, like, you so have that. Mm. Unless you What's do the electoral with, system? Is it, yeah. there's no of course it would be PR, like, you know. And, and the, other, the other point is, what is the position of, of unionism in Ireland? The way in which unionism in... The, in the Republic melted away very quickly after um, after 1922. Would there be an irreconcilable element, which seems quite possible to me in a, in a, in a United Ireland with that dispensation? Would that be one of the main kind of drivers of politics in a, in, in, in a New Ireland, Harry? Yeah, I think you'd have a... 30, my, my own view is that you'd have a 32-county republic or whatever whatever entity it would be you'd have a united ireland but you still would have partitionist politics and i think that you would find that um all of the political parties you know you, you, i think it would be hard for any party to prosper on a 32 county basis i think that you will have you would have the, the the parties that are strong in the south remaining strong in the south make, maybe making some inroads uh, into the north and those that are strong in the north i.e the unionists and some and the, the Republicans remaining strong there. So I, 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 I would see Sinn Féin remaining strong in the north, but not remaining particularly strong in the south. Of course, they'd be stronger because they'd have both, both the entities. But I, I would still see a huge difficulty in terms of, of 
the tribal nature, the tribal nature will be very hard to eradicate, and there'll be a partitionist uh, mentality there that will that 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 will remain. So I I I can't see a a an arrangement working fluidly. I think there might be kind of marriages of convenience. Um, Jennifer was kind of referring to Fine Gael and the the unionists perhaps kind of coming together, which which might happen. Uh, but I think that they would be temporary uh, arrangements done for political expediency rather than something that we could see working out on a longer term. Is but this really one so of these hypothetical? Ones where I know, you know, all of us as journalists are reluctant to say this. It's just impossible to tell because it would be very much the circumstances in which do we unity have, had like, arrived. Do, do, do we have violence in Dublin? Like, yeah, do we have a bombing campaign by union? Yeah. Like, yeah. That seems to me to be a likely, like, if there is United Ireland, then you'll see a campaign by paramilitary yeah. unionist uh, groups as well. So all that. Is in the mix too, you know. And nobody of knows. The budgets but and talk about the money, you know. The money it's almost is like people are afraid. Like there was some sort of move towards talking about what it may look like, but Brexit has just totally knocked that for six from a mainstream uh, party point. And Sinn Féin themselves have found that yeah, because they've like, tried to, to raise it. Has, 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 has in the past said we will talk about this, but they're just not willing to do so now because it seems yeah. to be so toxic injecting that into the debate about yeah. Brexit. And if you remember, it was Enda Kenny, I think, who first, well, he wasn't the first person to say, but in Glenty's, just after around the time of the referendum, he was making a speech which we all thought was very boring. And then at the very end, he kind of said, and you know, Brexit really does bring into prospect United Ireland. And we were kind of like, what? Mm. You know, and we should really think about this. And I remember that was the first time that it came into the sort of political <coughs> arena, you know, in an immediate sense. And it was just really interesting. Um, and then, of course, Leo Varadkar came out and said, you know, Ireland think, in my lifetime. I think there's a view in both in Fianna Fáil and uh, in, uh, also the higher echelons of, of the permanent government uh, and in Fine Gael that uh, talking about a united Ireland now at a time of heightened unionist anxiety about the union is exactly the wrong thing to do. And I think that's one of the reasons that I will make a, uh, a Sinn Féin participation in the next government uh, very problematic for either Fianna Fáil uh, or Fine Gael. Sinn Féin believes this is the time to talk about uh, a united Ireland. I can't help feeling that if you wanted to persuade unionists mm. into a united Ireland, you would be saying things like, we have no agenda to leverage Brexit into a united Ireland here. But that's exactly the opposite to what they said. said that a, a white paper on Irish unity from a government they participated in would be a precondition of them entering power in Dublin. Yeah, I, I was trying to do a bit of crystal ball gazing on that recently, I think, and I spoke to some people in Sinn Féin about it. I think that's one thing. I think they would require a white paper on Irish unity uh, as a price of uh, participating in government. I think they would rather than normally the junior partner looks for the Department of Finance to exercise power across government. I think Sinn Féin would look for the uh, Department of Foreign Affairs to advance the uh, the United Ireland uh, agenda. And I think that's, again, one of the reasons why Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael would have difficulty with it. Right, moving on to another question. Manus, uh, who lives in Italy, says, here in Italy, political parties see great value in the European Parliament elections for affecting EU policy, but also for publicity back at home. What effect, if any, do European Parliament elections have on Irish politics, Jennifer? I was really hoping you wouldn't ask me that first. I can see that look in your eye. Oh, God. Um, I, to be honest with you, I don't think Irish the Irish public pays that much attention to, let's say, for example, European elections. Um, it doesn't kind of generate the same level of debate of a, of a general election I mean, for, for normal and natural reasons. So I think there's kind of a bit of confusion about what they even do over there. When you talk about I don't know, when you, you hear people talking about kind of the, con, the confusion about what the role involves or 
And I don't think they get the same level of publicity back here for what they do. You know, mm. I'd get I mean, maybe they do get more publicity in Italy or in other European do, yeah, countries. Yeah, but yeah. not. It, I don't think but it's the same here. The, co- the coming European elections will perhaps be slightly different in that, you know, the European Union has been at the centre of national political debate for two or three years now. There is a heightened awareness of the European Union, what it does for us, um, what we contribute to the Union. So you just wonder, um, whereas in the past they were kind of you know, second order elections, good for morale, for the parties, uh, but didn't really have an effect on you know the performance of the dolls. So if we go back, Fianna Fáil didn't win any European Parliament seats in the last campaign. Am I right? Or is Brian Crowley under the Fianna Fáil banner? He was under the Fianna Fáil banner, but, yeah. but not for very long. Not very long. But on the same day, they outperformed Fine Gael in the local elections. So there's kind of doesn't really there's not really interplay with national politics. But I think this time it might be interesting to see if the public engage with it in a different level than they have before because of Brexit, and will they kind of assess the candidates before them on that basis? Because they just haven't done that up to now, have they, Pat? No, I mean, they've been as the second order election. It's a second order election. This is one of the growing fears in Brussels that because people don't take these elections as seriously as they take national elections, they will use it as an opportunity to vote for parties that they wouldn't necessarily elect to their own national legislatures, but which they uh, which they're happy to elect to uh, to the European Parliament. So parties of the far right, far left, protest candidates, all, all sorts of things. I suspect you will have a much fruitier European Parliament uh, uh, in the uh, after these elections Fine at the moment, uh, more more radical voices, I think, and more disparate. Um, I think you know the the domination of it by the big socialist and Christian democratic mm. blocs might they may have to uh, they may have to come together. It'll be more Eurosceptic, won't it? The the, the 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 nationalist and populist parties which have seen significant rise across Europe since the last European Parliament elections, they're going to be a, a block of what sorts. What does it mean yeah. for the whole Spitzenkandidat system whereby, you know, it's just it's just assumed, well, the centre-right will win, the centre-left will win, and therefore, you know, they will have a say or a take on who's going to be the pedestal. It's the, the question of the age, really. Yeah, the is yeah, what will this mean for the Spitzenkandidat? <laughs> this is exactly the reason people listen to this podcast. Like, like, you know, if there's that's a situation... That sounds like something you do at two o'clock in the morning in Baggett Street, doesn't it? But, 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 <laughs> no, Harry, what are you doing today? But to be, boring, be boringly serious for a moment, isn't that exactly the problem? Yeah, like, you know, Spitzenkandidat devises who's going to be the most powerful person, theoretically, in the European Union, yeah. and it's a butt of jokes if people know about it at all. So, like, you is of the EPP, the EPP won the most seats of any grouping across Europe in the last parliamentary elections at 14. Do we arrive at a situation where a broad, loose alliance of people of the populist left or populist right or both of them together are the largest group and they say, no, actually, we want this guy to be head of the commission. What happens then? The council can turn it down. Yeah, no, it the council appoints. Yeah, it yeah. Represents and a democratic uh, deficit in an already democratic deficient system. <laughs> my my, my learned friend is excited <laughs> yeah, in these matters today. There's no need to put a funny voice on. That's absolutely true, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Actually, we, I've got to re- point out to listeners that the Irish Times po- annual politics Christmas dinner took place last night. Yes, uh, and so. you're all you're all dealing with this with with this challenge with with, with great energy, considering <laughs> that's the case. Uh, kind of a related question, actually, and I don't know who wants to take this. Uh, a listener asks, Harry does. What are the prospects? of an alt-right party rising in Ireland? Very little, actually. Even though the, the preconditions are there. I mean, if you go to working-class areas in Dublin and you go to rural areas, there'll be a lot of antipathy towards foreign people. And you hear it when you, when you go out with politicians and hear people giving out about, about you know, people coming in from abroad and getting all the rights, they're getting better access to healthcare, they're getting cars, they're getting accommodation and this... So, on the face of it, it seems that there's an opportunity uh, for um, 
an alt-right or a right-wing or an anti-immigrant party uh, to make hay, but they have never had any purchase, really, in, in Irish politics. And um, there's a guy called uh, Rory Shocknessy, I think his name, he's an academic at the University of Limerick, who has conducted a couple of studies looking at the way the people... Uh, the, the, the policies the party ha- have and then analysing their supporters to say what views they hold. And the party that has the biggest um, level of disparity between the party's policies and the views of its supporters is Sinn Féin. So, uh, you get so Sinn Féin acts as a blocking mechanism against they the They do. Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin, in fairness to Sinn Féin... They're a nationalist Féin, party, but they are overtly... Uh, they're anti-racist, anti-racist. and yes. they're pro-immigration, and uh, they, they, I mean, it would be very easy for them to, to rise to that ruse because it's a populist position, and it's a thing that would get them But the thing, I wonder, the thing I wonder about that, and it is a bit speculative, if Sinn Féin come under various pressures, such as, for example, the pressure which it's had with the departure of Pater Tobin and Carol Nolan, if it comes under further pressures, if the Sinn Féin project begins to fragment a little bit, does that, does that situation apply? Perhaps it's it doesn't apply. Yeah, I'm speaking to one of their senior TDs recently and this person said that they had a concern that the kind of sentiment that lends itself to these type of movements is starting to become more overt in on the, you know like in Ireland on the ground so but they put it down to competition for services in certain areas of the country um, where the argument they would make is that there's been cutbacks for years and years and years. Services aren't as readily available as they were. There's pressure on the system and that the pressure on the system is leading people to express anti-immigrant sentiment to their public representatives. And this particular person, Sinn Féin, me, that is a problem. And they think that in order to solve that problem, they have to spend more money on services. They're not pandering to it. I thought it was interesting that they're not pandering to it, but they acknowledge there's a problem here and it has to be tackled. And, and if that's the case, and if there is as there's bound to be, and some people think it's not too far away, an economic downturn and some, or let's say some serious economic outturns out of what happens with, with Brexit, that puts the pressure on, doesn't it? Sure, and that's, you know, Ireland isn't so different from, you know, all other European countries that if there's pressure on resources, uh, you may see a rise of that, uh, of that, of that sort of sentiment. But uh, two, two, two further points I think worth making. Um, I, I was at uh, one of these meetings that Pater Tobin is having uh, around the country with a view to setting up a new uh, a new political party and I was at the one in Navan which of course is his hometown. It was packed with 300 people there. Great enthusiasm for the project and when it came to the questions gentleman uh, stood up and took the microphone and he began to give out about uh, uh, foreigners and he had one particular story about a foreign gentleman who was living in Navan and he was getting his house for free and his car for free and he was also he had, a, he, had uh, he was getting uh, foreign dog food for free because he had a foreign dog who wouldn't eat any of the uh, the local uh, the, the local dog food and uh, and Pater Tobin expressly and uh, and immediately put it down uh, said that people who come to this country needing help should get uh, our help and there was a resounding round of applause for uh, for that so i think there's a difference between uh, you know people you know giving out to politicians when they come to the doors and actually an appetite for a political platform that stands on the though, if there's, a, if there's a gap in the market which i think harry identified with his anecdotes from the doorsteps yeah. sooner or later somebody will see an opportunity in that they've tried that and they just haven't succeeded we've had a slew of kind of Part, they haven't really right, gone anywhere at all. Yeah, I think Renewa is kind of getting into that kind of area at the moment. And, 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 and who have we not on. mentioned yet in this discussion? God, Peter Casey. Peter Casey. Yeah. 
who disappeared, who has disappeared, despite the... Well, he's reappeared now. You know, there was an awful... When, when, out in, in the morning, Abby, you remember it in here, and we were all monitoring social media, and we were looking at reports and listening to phone-ins or whatever, uh, listening to radio coverage on it, and there was an inordinate amount, I thought, of, 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 of pearl-clutching uh, amongst people. was that people. not more specifically traveller-related, as opposed to, let's say, for example, you're talking about Potter Tobin's meeting and the guy who stood up and was talking about foreigners... You know, I think we've kind of been insulated a little bit from um, that purely on the basis of our geographical position. We haven't had the same problems that other countries have had in terms of an influx of migrants. Yeah, and, but look at the numbers. I mean, one, in, one in six people who live here were born outside the country. That's massive. Yeah, no, but I mean in terms of the, the migration crisis and the way that other countries have had to, you know, share borders. We, have, we don't have that issue and we, have been, and we haven't taken in nearly enough. No, and I think that has protected <coughs> us somewhat from... Maybe smaller parties. Who Absolutely. Would set up. I mean, I think there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a number of those factors that feed into it. And in addition to the Sinn Fein thing, recently, in, in the number of people coming in looking, seeking uh, refugee status, and we, mm. we actually, I mean, the, we we do have quite a. I mean, we, we're not quite as high as some other European countries, but starting from a very low base. I mean, before 1997, 1998, we we almost you know one percent, two percent, tiny amount, and now it's it's over ten percent. And uh, and it has increased, and it will it will cause. I mean, as you, as we've seen in Britain, uh, um, in in places South London, North London, uh, Birmingham, um, Manchester, where you've had kind of very difficult uh, um, race related crime, you've had ra- ra- race related uh, um, uh, assaults and murders. Uh, Toxted is one that I mean, the, the riots in Toxted in the nineteen. 19- 70s and 1980s were, were ones that come to mind. Isn't the, isn't the reality, though, that we're embarking on this journey for the first time, as you say, since only in the last 15 or 20 years, whereas in the UK you're talking about 50 years or more yeah, of mass migration from different countries, very different relationships. There's, you know, there's, there's a lot of complexity here. There, there is, but we have, I mean, the, 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 the percentages isn't all that low anymore. You know, it's, it's, it's high and people have to be cognizant of the way in which we, our society has to adapt in, in, or, in, over the long term. Like, for example, if you look at the Gorda Shikana, I mean, you're going to have to have a, a very good uh, racial and uh, gender mix in the Gordon Shukon and that's something that you have to be very aware of. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks very much to Pat, to Harry, to Jennifer and to Fiak. And we're not finished with all that. We have the second part of our Ask Me Anything podcast coming up in a few days' time. So do stick with us and keep an eye on your feeds for that. I'd just like to say uh, thanks to you, our listeners, for all the questions. And also to say that 2018 has seen a big surge in our audience numbers, which we're all really delighted about. So many of you are listening every week. And if you had a minute over Christmas to review the show or share it, that would be terrific, as it also helps us to continue growing into the new year. And as always, your views are very welcome and you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter but until the next time from me and from our producer Declan Conlon enjoy the rest of Christmas and have a very happy new year Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt Now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.